From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.thepodvocate.com and check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. My name is Leanne Jossend, and I am your host for today. I'll be talking to Loyola Law Professor John Blum. Professor Blum has held leadership positions in numerous health law organizations, including the American Health Lawyers Association, World Association for Medical Law, American Public Health Association, the American Bar Association's Health Law Section, and the Illinois Association of Healthcare Attorneys. In the words of Loyola Chicago Law Dean Michael Kaufman, Blum has led Loyola to national prominence in this ever-evolving and important field. All right, so today we are here with Professor John Blum, a real pioneer in the field of health law. So before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about your journey in health law? Well, it started many years ago. I, After law school, I got a master's in health administration at the Harvard School of Public Health. And when I did that, it introduced me to health administration and public health law issues. From there, I went to work for Boston University Medical Center for a research group for a number of years. And then I went into teaching and worked for Penn State for several years in their health policy program. And then from there, went to Loyola and have been at Loyola for over 30 years. And I've worked on a variety of issues in the health law field, but always with a pretty heavy focus on policy and public health. Yeah, that's a really rich history in health law. And you were the uh, inaugural Beasley Chair for Health Law and Policy, too. Yes, that's correct. Dean Kaufman aptly says that you're a real pioneer in health law. So first things first, just as a general overview, telehealth is really the broad range of services that improve patient care and the delivery system, while telemedicine refers more specifically to remote clinical services. Is that right? Uh, That's correct, although telemedicine in its broadest sense encompasses an array of technologies that all are focused around various aspects of telecommunications. So it doesn't necessarily have to be direct services in the broad sense. We can also talk about educational services and ways in which patient groups and interested consumers can be joined together around various healthcare topics. So it's really, it's really quite broad. Uh, Also, of course, a big development that is related to telehealth is is the growth in mHealth, which is mobile health. All of the multiple apps that are now available dealing with various healthcare issues some collecting data, some just providing information. So it's, it's in fact, it, it's a very broad area. Yeah, it seems both narrow in the sense of like the universe of technological advancements in medicine, but still broad in its own right. Um, when you say educational services, what do you mean by that specifically? Well, information for both clinicians 
and patients and families. There's a lot, just the Dr. Google phenomenon, there's a lot of information available through the internet that people can avail themselves of. Also, some of that information is directed toward people in the medical professions. So there's a lot of availability for clinicians to be able to connect with each other and to carry on discussions either generically about a particular area of medicine or targeted discussions that revolve around case analysis where an individual patient situation would be discussed. So anything that can happen in a traditional educational setting can also happen through telehealth or telemedicine settings. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot more accessibility when it comes to being able to contact specialists and confer with them regarding specific patients' medical needs. And in terms of both the pandemic and otherwise, we're seeing a great expansion in the use of telemedicine. Are there a lot of positives to this? I know one of them is it seems like it uh, increases access to medicine, especially in rural areas where they may not otherwise have access to specialists. But are there other benefits to seeing the expansion of telemedicine? Well, certainly in light of the pandemic and the potential for spreading the pandemic, it becomes a safe way for patients to interact with their physicians. So that's certainly a positive it may encourage people who are afraid to seek treatment to avail themselves of treatment through telemedicine technology. So certainly that, that's a big positive. Uh, what we, of course, are curious about or don't really know is after the pandemic, what this means for ongoing use of telemedicine, but certainly any vehicle that can connect patients with physicians in a clinical sense, I think is a positive thing. So I guess we've talked about the positives. Are there any specific negatives, really drawbacks to this expansion of telemedicine? Are there, um, you know, some clinicians might not be able to diagnose properly because it's at such a distance, you're not able to examine a person or really talk to them face to face. And in the legal sense, are there a lot of liability issues, jurisdictional questions because of the medicine being practiced at a distance? Well, I mean, there, there's certainly, I mean, you've highlighted some of what the concerns might be. Certainly, even though the technology is improved and the picture resolutions are very good to the point where you can actually diagnose a small imperfection on the skin, it's still not face-to-face. -face. So the physicality of medicine that is so important particularly for certain types of illnesses, is not there. So it's not appropriate for everything, but certainly during this crisis period, it has great benefits. You've opened the door to a number of possible issues that have come up. There's been a lot of talk about potential medical malpractice and whether or not it would exacerbate malpractice because of the lack of physical exam, it's not clear. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of cases. There's a lot of discussion about it. But there are a couple other areas that I think that this area highlights. One area would be the licensing area. 
And of course, telemedicine is borderless medicine. And so it's very easy for a physician, say, in Chicago to be treating somebody in California. And the question arises about licensing and whether or not the physician who is based in Chicago has to have a license in California. And, and that has been a longstanding issue in telemedicine and has been sorted out a bit, but is still a major challenge. The other issue is reimbursement. And reimbursement has been quite limited for telemedicine. There have been some changes as a result of COVID that have liberalized reimbursement policy. There have been a number of states that have passed insurance parity laws, but these have been the reimbursement, fear of liability, have been impediments to the growth of telemedicine. That's not to say that they can't be solved, because I think we're beginning to address these issues, but there are problems that are still not thoroughly addressed. Yeah, in terms of insurance providers adopting telemedicine, you see a lot of exceptions, for example, in Medicare and Medicaid, um, where they've kind of passed exceptions or really quick band-aid things to allow for telemedicine. So there are some kind of stopgap exceptions that are being created right now. Do you see those sticking or do you see them kind of being woven into the existing system or are they going to have to be almost overhauled? Well, the licensing issue, I think, is being addressed. There, there is a national medical licensing compact, which has been created, and I'm thinking there are close to 30 states now that participate in that. It, do, it doesn't alleviate or change the central requirement that physicians have a license, but what it does is it allows for licensing in one state to be recognized in another state through this centralized compact process. So I think from that, from the licensing standpoint, there is going to be permanent change. Where there's a lot more question is in the Medicare area. Uh, in Medicare, there's been waivers that have been in place for a number of months. I mean, traditionally, Medicare reimburses for telemedicine only in rural or underserved areas. So the geography has been relatively limited. And I think the Medicare program is concerned that once they reimburse for something, it may be difficult to control it. So the waiver is fairly broad right now. So there is widespread reimbursement under Medicare, but the other thing is, of course, the concept that the feds have is that telemedicine will be something that is synchronous. So it's live doctor to patient. It's not asynchronous. It's also not what we refer to as store and forward, which is technology that can be batched and then electronically sent. So you could do a radiologist, for example, could do a batch of tests, and those tests then could be batched in, in scent, and that wouldn't be in real time. So these things have been liberalized, but whether or not they'll continue to be liberalized, we honestly don't really know right now. Speaking of electronic information being um, sent, uh, HIPAA broadly covers 
healthcare providers, health plants, and healthcare clearinghouses. Um, but it also covers business associates. And what is the state of services like Zoom or Skype or other video services used for synchronous communication of health information? Are they covered under business associates? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think they would take the position that they're neutral uh, providers. Uh, I personally think that if they're involved in the diagnosis and treatment and recognized as being so involved, I think they would be covered as business associates, but that's not clear. Uh, you've raised, Leanne, an interesting question about privacy and security, which has to generally be addressed in this area. But the application of HIPAAs and state law is, is another story. But I tend to err on the side of caution in this and think they should be, these pur purveyors of these services should be considered as business associates who have obligations under the HIPAA law. Skype actually released a statement that said they are explicitly not a business associate. Um, they released an, a whole statement saying that they're just um, a conduit as defined by high tech as transporters of information, but they don't access it. Is it valid for Skype to just say they're not a business associate? Does that kind of have any legal weight to it? Because it just seems kind of like they're saying it. Well, yeah, I, I think your skepticism is warranted. I think they can, you can say whatever position you want to take, but that doesn't mean that the law is on your side. And I think where we have services that are widely promoted, available, and it's very clear to these third parties that they are integral to the service, I think their position becomes more difficult to take that posture that they're totally removed from these situations. I mean, I clearly understand why they want to do that. But on the other hand, I don't think that's realistic. Yeah. And high tech's definition of conduit is intentionally supposed to be a narrow one anyway. So it might seem like they don't want to apply it to um, these intermediaries. Right. What was high tech's impact on telemedicine? Well, I, I think the impact is, is more one that allowed for a certain introspection of these services. Uh, I'm not sure that it has had a dramatic effect in the sense that it has limited telemedicine services. I think it's created an awareness of the need to be cognizant of privacy and security issues. And so there's a bit of caution, I think, that that statute imposed on the field, but I don't think it's been a tremendous impediment. I, actually, it's interesting that we're talking about privacy and security because you might speculate that those would be areas that would minimize the application, but it hasn't proven to be a major barrier to adoption. Something that you mentioned earlier is mHealth, which is for um, mobile apps, correct? Right. Apple and other agencies and institutions have actually been collecting voluntarily health information from people in order to provide more data for managing and tracking the COVID-19 pandemic. Are there any unusual or unexpected legal 
consequences for collecting and managing such information? Well, I think, you know, we talked about privacy and security. And so I think that certainly is going to be central to our ability to, to do this, to collect large volumes of data. I suppose some of this information is not necessarily as accurate as you want it to be. I mean, just because it's collected electronically and assembled electronically doesn't mean that that data is all real good as far as it's particularly accurate. So I think that's something that we'd have to be concerned about. There's also issues about being able to protect that information as it goes from a layperson's devices into a healthcare provider network, I suppose that is always an issue. But certainly, I mean, collecting, being able to aggregate large amounts of data and having thousands of people feed into databases is important for the growth of population health and for our ability to do precision medicine. So I think that using mobile apps is a way to enhance that. In terms of administrative law, we now know that there was a pandemic response unit. Are we going to see any new agencies being created or new offshoots of any agencies, or are we just going to see something like a restaffing of that unit of the government? Well, I'm not sure we'll see anything new that's specific to using mobile apps or telemedicine. I just think we need to be on the regulatory side, aware of this and factor that reality into whatever regulatory oversight program that we're focused on. So I, I think just like any new technology or any technology, regulators need to be aware of it, aware of a potential and aware of, of particular abuses that could occur. Regarding doctors and providers, We've talked a lot in the legal profession about the creation of an attorney-client relationship, but the doctor-patient relationship, especially with regard to telemedicine, is there a hard line for when those are established as created, or is it still kind of a gray area? Well, I don't think there's necessarily a hard line here, but I, I think it's pretty clear that as this technology has evolved, that you can create electronically a physician-patient relationship. I think based upon sort of what is medical practice and the various ways in which medical practice is defined, I think those sorts of activities, the treatment, diagnosis of medical conditions can be done electronically. So I think there is a greater recognition of the ability to create a physician-patient relationship. Where that question has come into play is in the context of prescribing. And so traditionally, prescribing medicines requires a physical exam, which traditionally has been a face-to-face -face examination before controlled substances in particular can be prescribed. But I think even there, we've gotten to the point where we recognize that enough safeguards can be built into that, that there is a relationship that can be formed that would underscore the ability of a clinician to be able to 
function in any way in which they function in a, in a traditional setting. When you say that there are safeguards built into that process, what do you mean specifically? Well, things like informed consent, things like providing services based upon the adequacy of clinical information that would be available to a physician. Um, I think those are requirements. We're, we're seeing more and more practice guidelines that are developed specifically for telemedicine services, either by professional medical societies or by groups like the American Telemedicine Association. So what is evolving and may continue, likely will continue to evolve, are the development of practice guidelines and standards for this type of medicine. People who are proponents of this argue that, you know, this is really not some hybrid. This is medical practice. It may be a different way to do it, but the same principles that apply to traditional medical practice apply to telemedicine. And so the same types of cautions that physicians would exercise in a traditional setting should be applied in the electronic telemedicine setting. You mentioned getting informed consent. Are there any issues with getting informed consent over a digital medium? Because, you know, we all have issues with signing papers and that kind of thing digitally. So it seems like getting informed consent over a digital medium might present even more issues than it would in person. Well, I I think it, it may be, depending on the patient, it may be a bit more difficult to be able to ascertain what that individual's level of understanding is. But it really, I don't see it as significantly different than face-to-face. It may require a little more time and a little more explanation about sort of the nature of what's going to happen. But the other thing about telemedicine is that it's not generally just a patient without any support on his or her end and a clinician on the other end of the transmission. There's usually some type of individual, medical individual, may not be a physician, who is available and to assist with the, the patient. Uh, where you might run into trouble or challenges is where a patient is in his or her own home and they're alone there. There you might be more concerned about informed consent and the nature of what's transpiring in terms of the individual being cognizant of what they would normally be monitored for in a traditional setting. So more broadly, how has the overall landscape changed specifically with context to the pandemic? We've talked kind of about telemedicine in general, but is there anything that the pandemic has really hastened other than the adoption of telemedicine more widely? Well, I mean, one of the things I think that's pretty apparent all around the country is the adoption by medical centers of e-visits. And so, I mean, that certainly has exploded. I think that people who might have been a little bit reticent to avail themselves of telemedicine because they have to in this context or in the COVID context, I think we're we're seeing interest and growth. Some of that 
is creating converts. Some of it is creating people who will probably think, oh my gosh, I never want to do this again. So I think it's sort of a mixed bag in terms of where it will go as far as expansion. But certainly what has happened is there's just a tremendous amount of awareness about the availability of this kind of service and the possibilities that people have for medical care done in this seemingly novel way. What is now novel probably won't be considered to be so novel in the future. So building off of that, do you see this hanging around? So when I sign up for future doctor visits, am I going to be able to say widely, like, I just want to have my visit over telemedicine? Is that going to be a widespread adoption or is it going to kind of peter off after the pandemic is over? Well, I, uh, I think, Leanne, that it's going to be a fairly widespread adoption. I think it is going to be dependent on the population. Uh, I think younger people are going to be more inclined to use telemedicine for convenience sake. Parents of young children might be more attracted to telemedicine because it doesn't require the same amount of time that office visits require. I think older people with chronic illness may be less inclined to depend wholly on telemedicine, but may be willing to mix up their care, some virtual, some face-to-face. And then there obviously are things that can't be done through telemedicine. And so some areas that you just can't do that in that telemedicine context will be traditional face-to-face. But it's going to be, I think it's going to be a dramatic change in how medical practice is going to be pursued in the future. We talked about Medicare and Medicaid uh, adopting telemedicine. What about private insurers? Has there been a consensus amongst the varied private insurers that they want to adopt this process, or have they kind of rejected it, or is it a mixed bag? Well, I don't think, I mean, in, in one way or one sense, they're being pushed into telemedicine by virtue of parity laws which require that telemedicine be recognized and reimbursed as any other kind of medicine. The other thing is, of course, many insurers are dependent on employer sponsorship. And so I think more and more employers that are offering health insurance will want to use telemedicine as a way to save money as a way to attract their employees to enroll in in certain plans. So I think that probably we're going to see that the insurance companies are probably going to adopt this fairly regularly. They may not necessarily always like it, but that's another issue. Um, But I think we're going to see in the private side, we've already seen, where private insurers are more and more willing to cover this kind of service or these kinds of services. You mentioned um, saving money in the health process. Health costs represent a huge chunk of our annual budget. 
and a ton of spending nationwide. What are the most cost-saving aspects of telemedicine, other than um, it saves a lot of time and energy to have people physically staffed? Well, I mean, your practice overhead is the fact that you, you don't have people coming into an office setting would allow you probably to streamline some of your infrastructure. It certainly would save lots of time on the part of clinicians who could move through a schedule more quickly with a telemedicine-based practice. So I think there are scales of efficiency that can be reached through telemedicine that would encourage individuals to, to adopt it. That's not to say you don't have administrative costs. That's not to say you don't have similar kinds of record-keeping issues, but I just think that it's a more efficient way for some things to occur. On the other hand, I mean, people might argue, well, what it does is it increases utilization because it's so easy to use that individuals will want not only to do their telemedicine visits, but they'll want to go in for the physical visit as well. So there's been some concern about what it will do to, could it possibly increase utilization? So it's kind of a double-edged sword here, but I think overall it does have the potential to reduce costs because of the more efficient way that it can be adopted. Yeah, that's a perspective I hadn't considered because it does seem like almost having my cake and eating it too. Sure. You know, I want to be able to have the ease of having a visit almost on tap here. But I also want to be able to go in and see my provider more frequently just for those physical in-person visits and that kind of thing. Sure. Is there anything to be aware of moving forward in terms of just everything we've discussed? Anything to keep an eye out for? Well, I I think, you know, the one sort sort of come back to where we started. I mean, I think the one thing that it's pretty clear is that this area includes a whole spectrum of services and technologies. And I think not only are we going to have a growth in the traditional sort of physician-patient interface, and we'll have a growth in seeing telemedicine apply to that, but also we're going to have a continued explosion in the use of medical apps, in the use of internet sites and connectivity, although we already have an awful lot there, but we'll, we'll see even more. And I suppose the other thing that we can expect is that all these technologies are going to improve over time. So the potential to do more with telemedicine or telehealth will, will continue to expand as the technology expands. So I know we've covered a lot and jumped around a bit. Is there anything that you had in mind related to telemedicine and the pandemic that we haven't covered? Something that you really keep in mind? Well, I think the one thing that's kind of interesting about this is that it's not just domestic, but it has potential for international uh, applications as well. And so there's been a lot of interest uh, over time in using this telemedicine technology as a way to address some of the international global health issues 
and there, to my knowledge, there's not yet any particular treaty that has been developed to deal with this. And that's something that may occur in the future or will have to be confronted in the future. Uh, so I think there's a lot of interesting issues that you can get into in, in that context. Yeah, it seems like since this affects the whole world, there's a lot of widespread public health considerations to take into account, both nationally and internationally. Sure. I don't have any other questions, and I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. I really appreciated this conversation that we had. And just any final thoughts? Just that we're going to be seeing more of this technology. I think it's going to become the telemedicine Telehealth area will become one that I think most people will be familiar with. And I think that in the future, a high percentage of our population will be using some or some of these services. Uh, so we're looking at a growth area. All right. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com and visit our website at www.thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are... Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our Editor-in-Chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.